0: This episode of Landmine Radio is sponsored by Dittman Research. Do you know what the most valuable thing in the world is? High-quality information. Because high-quality information informs much better decision-making. Dittman Research has been providing high-quality information to Alaska's leading businesses, organizations, and campaigns for 50 years. Do you really know what Alaskans think about your company or your issue? How about your clients, your shareholders, or your employees? So stop fumbling around in the dark. Hire Ditman Research and find out what's really going on. DitmanResearch.com. Okay, here with uh, Ben Sheehan. How you doing, Ben? I'm doing great, Jeff. How are you? You're I'm um, doing great. You're probably one of my more famous. I mean, the podcast here is pretty local to Alaska, so uh, you're uh, you're you're one of the more famous ones I've got so far. I'm really really happy you're here. I um, wear that as a badge of honor. It's it's pretty amazing. So I first came across you. I think I heard about you before for the you were involved with Funnier or Die, which we'll talk about. But you were on Bill Maher, which I religiously watch every week. I mean, I love how he his calls and takes on stuff. Um, and you were on there months ago, uh, promoting this new book called, uh, OMG WTF, which I think is, Oh my God, what the fuck, uh, does the constitution actually say? That is correct. And we we have the book club we started, uh, last year and we picked your book for our book club a few months back and I read it. And, um, I just want to talk about the book and, and how you came up with the idea, but it's such a, it's such an interesting way to understand what the Constitution says. And if anybody who's ever read the old, you know, the older stuff, it's really hard to read. I mean, it's like, if you have to, even if you're a good reader, smart, it's like, what what am I reading? What does this say?
1: Yeah, I mean, I noticed this pretty quickly, I was doing some political work in 2018, um, on basically teaching people about why they should care about state level races so a lot of people were focused on obviously congress and the house and the senate but there were so many governors and secretaries of state and attorneys general up and they're they're going to be up again now because it's mostly four-year terms and so in 2022 but there were so many up and they were still getting so little attention sort of as a block so i thought i would try to create this organization to focus on a few states and through content and live events, teach people about why they should care about these races. And and to my sort of surprise, but I guess it shouldn't be a surprise, so few people knew that their state even had an attorney general or a secretary of state, They or let alone what those jobs did. And so this sort of got me thinking about civics education, and that's what led me to realizing that today only eight states require a minimum year of civics or government education K through 12. So we're graduating people the last 20 years who have barely any knowledge of this information. So I thought I'd start sort of at the beginning, um, which is obviously our constitution. That's kind of what led me to the idea for this book.
0: So, so you, you have a background, you were involved with Funny or Die, um, which, which I think is in the book, it's so good because it's so informative, but you take a kind of a funny, Funny you you have a humoristic approach I think one of the funniest parts was uh, the Constitution actually doesn't say the speaker of the House has to be elected uh, to Congress, it can be anybody it's always been somebody in Congress, but you were saying, I think it was Lionel Richie. Uh, the potential you know, lionel Richie
1: right, in there uh, uh blake shelton i think was speaker lionel Richie was president pro tempore um you know all the judges from the mass singer were on the supreme court basically because like you or i literally there are no requirements whatsoever for any of those jobs
0: so so you mentioned the civics thing and i'm 36 i don't know if you're about my age, age or yeah so i remember in school you know we had a hist- I grew up in new mexico i moved to alaska in 04 but we we had history and I took like AP history, so I was kind of a little bit interested in this stuff. And uh, my parents really taught me about you know informing yourself and, and being educated about history and civics. Um, but but looking back and even now talking to people, I mean it's just astounding how little people know, even the basics. Like what are the three branches? Why do we have three branches? You know, wh- how did we get here? Um, and you you talk about that in the book, but I mean what what do you what do you think is a way to I mean fix that because it's just you know mandatory civics and some states have that you, you mentioned
1: yeah i mean if anyone's in the mood to depress themselves looking at the litany of statistics showing that you know three quarters of the united states members of the united states or i should say citizens or, or residents can't name the three branches of government a third can't name any branch of government. Um, you know, ten percent of people in the United States think Judge Judy's on the Supreme Court, which is a stat that uh, Justice Gorsuch likes to to bring up a lot. Basically, there are studies that show over and over again that the civic knowledge among people generally in this country is is horrible. And so, I was thinking about why that is, and and you know, kind of looking at it compared to other countries. But the the real thing that I, I learned is that. We actually used to teach this stuff a lot in the 50s and 60s, classes like civics and American government, U.S. history, foundations of democracy, like these were really common classes in our schools. And after the 50s and 60s, they started to to, to drop a little bit. But the big sort of death knell for civics classes and, and U.S. history classes started in 2002 with No Child Left Behind. And I don't think this was this was the intent of of this law um which basically incentivized the teaching of reading and math for the purpose of federal funding uh to increase you know americans test scores in those subjects and the same thing happened in common with common core in 2010 and every student succeeds in 2015 you have this like almost two decade period of federal and state policies just hammering home the need to score really highly in standardized tests and reading and math and so teachers and schools with their limited resources were just basically focusing on those two subjects. And so these other subjects like civics just became, you know, further and further down the priority list until they just eventually fell off.
0: Yeah, I mean, my frustration, and I, you know, I cover politics in Alaska, and I'm, I'm kind of in the in the bubble. So I feel like I talk to a lot of people every day that know all this stuff. And then I start talking to other friends of mine that aren't in the bubble, um, who, are, who are even smart people who are, who are accomplished and, and you know educated, but they just don't sometimes know things that just kind of shock me. And I've always thought to live in a democracy, I mean, you have to have an informed electorate or an informed public. And if you don't have an informed public, uh, people can make and often do make, you know, bad decisions and who they vote for or what they think they're doing or what the person can do, whether it's the president or the governor
1: or the legislator. I mean, it's literally one of the things that the people who wrote the Constitution were particularly concerned about, especially George Washington, who in his farewell address, his, I guess, final State of the Union in 1796, he pleaded Congress to create a national institution for the purpose of teaching everyone how the government works so that they could both serve in it and put pressure on it from outside. This was also the impetus for the reason we have public education in the United States, was the concern of teaching people civic knowledge. People need to know how to work both within the government and also how to put pressure on it and and influence it as a citizen or or even as a non-citizen. And the fact that now it's such an afterthought is so far from the intent of this subject being so central to our education system, so we've really come a long way from how this subject was supposed to be prioritized.
0: So you mentioned the the emphasis on civics and history in the '50s and '60s, and then you know this change from no child left behind. I um, mean, what are your what are your thoughts about what the average person in the 1950s or '60s thought or understood about the government compared to now? And and I guess also there's the context of. Um, you know, I I think back then you could argue that some people weren't as treated. I mean, they, a lot of people weren't treated as, as equal um, under the law. But well,
1: I'm um, certainly. I mean, but I, I the way I look at it is is you know, and, and I say fifties and sixties, but it's really post World War II, right? You know, after World War II, there was sort of this renewed national um, interest, and and so civics and and related classes were kind of the byproduct of that, and that's why they were so popular and so spread throughout the country, but. I think you kind of look at the 1960s as, as a pretty good example of this. I mean, 15 years or so, I'm just taking sort of ballpark right after, you know, the end of uh, World War II, but 15 years of civics classes created a pretty well-informed population. I mean, between protests and and demonstrations and understanding of what laws should be pushed for at the local, state, and federal level, you had a pretty engaged citizenry and and we certainly remember laws like the civil rights act and the voting rights act but people often forget that for the period of 1961 to 1971 we ratified four constitutional amendments Mm -hmm. The idea that we could have ratified four constitutional amendments since 2011 is sort of shocking, but that's, that's what happened. And these were things like giving, you know, DC voting rights for, for the president, Um, you know, abolishing poll taxes, changing how we, um, you know, uh, you know, deal with presidential and vice presidential vacancies and, and giving voting rights to, um, to people 18 and up. These are, these are pretty consequential things.
0: That was one of my kind of, I I have several takeaways I want to discuss with you, but one of them is just like there's several instances in how they kind of determine how the president and the, cause it used to be the second place voter uh, or vote earner was vice president. So that was when I think it was Adams and Jefferson had, they didn't like each other. Um, is that right? I think it was. Sort
1: of, I mean, yes, it changed. It actually, well, it was actually Burr, uh, Aaron Burr and and Thomas uh, uh, Jefferson. So halfway through Jefferson's uh, uh, presidency, they they changed how the how the president would be selected. Um, it was actually right after his uh, his victory, um, which was pretty narrow, but his his new victory in eighteen oh one, early eighteen oh one. But it used to be that there were two, you know, there was one vote for for the president, the vice president, whoever got first place became the president, whoever got second place in the electoral vote became. Could you could you, you imagine president.
0: if we had that right now? <laughs>
1: uh oh my I mean, God. it would be a night i mean it'd be a nightmare i mean so i i would say it's it's not a particularly uh you know stress free process given the events of the last few uh few months but back in 1801 it was similarly uh stressful where what happened is that the uh the two like front runners for the electoral college um uh thomas jefferson and aaron burr they tied in electoral votes. And under the Constitution at the time, uh, you know, this had to be decided in the House. But then the House started voting, and they, uh, no one could get a majority, you need a clear majority of states to win, and they couldn't get, uh, no one could get a majority. And so the House ended up voting 35 times for president, and they could not break a deadlock. And then, in, you know this is sort of referenced in the musical, um, uh, Hamilton, but uh uh, among other things alexander hamilton came out um and and supported his his rival uh thomas jefferson and that tipped the balance in jefferson's favor and that led to the famous duel between burr and hamilton and we we know how that how that ended not well for alexander Mm -hmm. hamilton at least at the time but um this this led to the 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 changing in the 12th amendment of how we elect presidents vice presidents so they began doing it as separate votes rather than um as uh, as as one vote, but not until uh, 1967 with the 25th Amendment um, uh, did we have to fill the office of Vice President if there was a vacancy. For you know, 200 years almost, the office of Vice President could go vacant and people didn't have to fill it, and that that happened a lot. People would just leave the office. Vacant, but it wasn't until uh, uh, after the Kennedy assassination and the Twenty Fifth Amendment that they said, "Okay, well, if there's a vacancy for vice president, the president has to uh, nominate somebody to be confirmed by the, the House and the Senate."
0: And then the uh, no, and then the succession goes. That's third. Third. The succession, as far as third in line, is Speaker, correct? And then there's the pro president.
1: Uh, and- Second in line is spe- Yeah, first, first in line is the vice president. Second in line is speaker. Mm-hmm. Uh, third in line is the president pro tempore. And then it's um, uh, the secretary of state. And it basically just goes down the list of cabinet appointments in the order those jobs were created. And, and
0: I don't know if you're familiar or aware of uh, Senator Ted Stevens. He was Alaska's longtime senator for over 40 years. And he was head of appropriations. And he's kind of a legend up here. I mean, the airport's named after him and
1: right. steered,
0: steered him and Daniel Inouye when he was with Hawaii. They both steered a lot of money to Alaska and Hawaii. But he was president pro tempore for a while. And people would kind of talk about that as like, you know, oh my gosh, that's kind of a big, big, big deal.
1: Well, it makes sense because it's usually, as I mentioned the book, it's usually the senior most, uh, or I guess the longest serving member of the um, majority party. So that's why when the you know, Senate was under um, Republican control, it was Chuck Grassley, who I, I think is 87 or something like that. And then now that the it's under slight democratic control, it's um, Patrick Leahy, who's similarly uh, very old.
0: Now you also talked about um after the Civil War the 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 three amendments you know banning slavery and the kind of the Reconstruction period and um there was the presidential election which unfortunately kind of ended the Reconstruction um where there was a, a electoral problem correct yeah pretty big um big, big I mean happened... this was what they talked about this last with Trump and you know the whole investigation Ted Cruz and these guys referenced this this investigation, I guess, back in the 18, I guess it was the 18, 1880s?
1: It was in uh, 1876 and 1877. So, 1870s, happened, right? yeah, so in 1876, so there have been five times, uh, well, I should say four, five times when the winner of the uh, popular vote uh, did not uh, become the president and there have been four times where the winner of the popular vote lost the electoral college so this is one of those times they were uh, 1824 1876 1888 2000 and 2016 so 1876 what happened was the uh there were the the um, Democratic candidate Samuel Tilden who was I believe governor of New York uh, he won the popular vote by three. And it looked like he was he was going to win. He was also leading in electoral votes by 19. Uh, but a few states had not sent in their electoral votes yet for various reasons. There were uh, um, cries of election fraud and and election tampering and ballot box stuffing in Florida, in South Carolina. I think, you know, they added up the numbers in South Carolina and it was like, you know, 100, the, the votes added up to 101%. Uh, so obviously something going on there, but... When the need, votes need, finally need, came in... Need one of those
0: audits, right?
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. They could have used, uh, you know, at least a calculator uh, back then probably would have been helpful. Florida, South Carolina, Louisiana, and then I think one vote from Oregon because they had to replace an elector and there was like a fight or something like that. But point of me saying this is that when after all those disputes, because they were delayed, when all of the votes came in finally they ended up going to the republican candidate Rutherford B Hayes who i believe was governor of ohio when that gave him a, a lead of one electoral vote so this guy Samuel Tilden's got a 19 electoral vote lead and a 3% lead in the popular vote and suddenly you know when the delayed votes come in he's losing by one in the in the contest that actually matters and so you know, Tilden supporters like shot at Rutherford B. Hayes's house in Ohio. Um, you know, Southern Democrats, which were the um, you know the the white supremacist factions in the in the South and and largely throughout the country, you know, threatened to have a separate parallel inauguration. They threatened to kill Hayes at his inauguration, and so Damn. the country was about to sl- the, the country was about to slide into like you know a back into civil war. And so what happened is Congress appointed this commission, this electoral commission. It's not entirely sure that this is even constitutional, but they went ahead and appointed this commission, and it consisted of five, um, uh, uh, I believe, five Democrats, five Republicans, and then five Supreme Court justices, and then I think the or, or two four justices, and they would pick the fifth. But and it ended, ended up being fifteen people to decide what the what the heck to do, and it um, it ended up being that they they created this compromise where Tilden supporters and, and Hayes supporters basically said, okay, look, we don't want parallel inaugurations. We don't want, you know, Hayes to be assassinated, but we'll cut you a deal. If you let this inauguration go without a hitch, we will, Hayes will promise to remove all the federal troops from the South who had been there for, you know, 12 years almost, Enforcing the Thirteenth, Fourteenth, and Fifteenth Amendments—the ones you just mentioned—things uh, like the end of slavery, things like you know citizenship for African Americans and and former slaves, things like you know voting rights protections for uh, for African Americans. If you let Hayes become president, we'll take all the federal troops out, and you guys, Southern states, will be left to your own devices. And that's what the compromise was. And so they let Hayes become president. They made the, they came to this uh, a decision two days, forty eight hours before. The inauguration back then the inauguration was on March 4th and so this was finally yeah. decided on March 2nd and Hayes became president. He wasn't assassinated as inauguration. he true to his word a, a month or two later he removed all the federal troops from the south and basically left uh, you know ironically African Americans who had just voted for Hayes because because back then African Americans were almost exclusively Republican voters. They voted for Hayes, and then he took away the troops and left them with these Southern Democrats who were white supremacists, and you know the country slid backward for decades. And, decades. and by, I mean, by, by all
0: accounts, th- things in the South under uh, Reconstruction until this happened were were actually pretty good. I mean, there there was, I mean, all you know, we saw much later, obviously, the result, of the Klan, and then the, you know, the the Jim Crow, much later. But um, reading about that period, I mean, th- things were things weren't uh, things were much much improved. After, well, they the-
1: they were. You're, de- you're absolutely correct in that they were improving. They were improving at a pretty quick rate because you had African-Americans registering in huge numbers. You had African-American members of, of Congress. People forget that between 1865 and 1876 or 1877, we had 16 African-American members of Congress, 14 members of the House and two senators uh, with all, all African-American men. Um, so there was a lot of progress. You had 1,500, um, um, you know, African Americans holding office between the federal, state, and local level, at least. And so you had a huge amount of progress in a short time. But it, this is what created the backlash. I mean, it was in the um, shortly after the end of the Civil War that the first KKK. You know, we, we we tend to think of the KKK in like the early 1900s with the white hoods and um, you know, Birth of a Nation era. But that's well, actually the second iteration of the KKK. Yeah. The first one was was for about five year period, and you also had the red shirts and the white league and the white liners and the knights of the white camellia all these sort of paramilitary groups that were um you know violent groups that that sought to intimidate african-americans through uh through violence really to prevent them from from voting uh through things like lynching and and massacres things like you know colfax and new Orleans. i mean all these places throughout the south that we're sort of just uncovering um now and re- revisiting but um yeah i mean this is a period of history that we don't really Really teach, but but the Civil War didn't end in 1965. In practice, it continued because former Confederate soldiers just formed paramilitary groups and continued to fight the yeah. war and 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 through through a different means. So, uh, really, the, the the thing that was the most consequential was this removal of the troops, and that led to you know almost 100 years of poll taxes, literacy tests, uh, you know Jim Crow laws, as you mentioned, and and that's re- really set so- the country on a new track.
0: So knowing all this and, and having this this historical background, I mean, what are you just kind of playing playing a magic ball here, eight ball here? What what do you think would have happened if this issue wouldn't have come up and the troops would have stayed in the in the South?
1: Um, I think you'd probably have a lot of conflict between state and local governments and the federal government, um, which is kind of what happened at the Battle of New Orleans in 1866. You'd have more confrontations uh, for a much longer period of time where you'd have, you know, federal troops basically facing off against state forces, um, local forces, and also just, you know, sort of renegade militia forces uh, for a more continued period um, of 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 violence i don't know how long it would have lasted um you know it, it pretty closely mirrors the the escalation in political power and and earning power for for african-americans at the time but it was you know it was a, a it was a pretty ugly horrible continuation so you'd see a lot more more violence but again you still saw members of congress you know who were african-american and so i think you would have had you know equality in, in, in law, in, in voting power, uh, certainly a lot sooner than, you know, 1964 and 65.
0: What was one of your, you know, we're doing this book and and reading the constitution. And I mean, I assume you probably had a lot of lawyery type people help you because like when I read this stuff, I'm like, what am I reading? You know, um, (laughs) what was one of your biggest, uh, you talk a lot of, a lot of interesting things and noteworthy, um, parts of the constitution. What was one of your big takeaways or one of the things
1: where you were like, oh man, that's in there. Um, well, I, ha- I have to be honest with you, it's it's less that certain things are in there and more surprising what isn't mm. in there. Like mm-hmm. the fact that we don't actually have a constitutional right to vote was a big surprise to me. And and this is because at the convention in 1787, they left voting up to the states because if they had said, you know, across the country who gets to vote and who doesn't, um, southern states would have never gone along with it because southern states and northern states had roughly equal population if we're looking at it just like individual persons uh but far fewer of the people in southern states could vote because they were enslaved and so if you did it as you know if you included those people southern states would have never agreed to ratify the constitution and so they left the up uh, you know while congress can make voting laws around you know members of you know elections for congress voting is almost entirely left up to the states and so by you know with that we actually don't have a constitutional right to vote it's up to our, our state and what's most surprising i think is that in the early days um voting for african americans was actually pretty common you know the majority of states of the original 13 colonies actually allowed african americans free african americans to vote new jersey allowed women to vote um but then in the early 1800s this began to change like you know between 1807 and 18 you know 36 or so States started passing laws restricting voting, but um, if you look at the amendments, the famous ones like the 15th and the 19th and the 26th, you know they talk about the rights of citizens can't be denied or abridged based on race, based on like your women, sins, based women on, or, or yeah, based yeah. on your race or sex or 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 you know being 18 and up. But it doesn't say that those people have a right to vote. So we still see this play out today, right? Some states allow people who are currently incarcerated in prison to vote and other states only give back, you know, some states will ban voting for, you know, felons for life. So we tend to think about the federal government as the one that like runs our life, but the biggest takeaway I've had from the constitution is that the federal government is way more limited than I realized and that I was led to believe and that the power is really at the state level. Well, and this, this is
0: this is why I've always told people, um, friends of mine or people who say, oh, my God, the election's fixed. I say, you just can't, it's not fucking possible. I mean, there's 50 states who have 50 different systems and they're running the, lo- many of them are on the local level. I mean, you, you can't just, there's not like one system to go and go, you know, there's 50 systems or 50, you know, 50, I guess when you count DC and more in the territories, but um, it's it's just not something that's centralized, it's decentralized.
1: Totally. You'd have to have, like, a coordinated effort to hack the systems of 3,067 3, counties to, yeah. to really have, like, an, an effect. And you're talking about very different software and machines. I mean, it, it's, it's extremely, extremely hard uh, to to do that. So, you know, in a way, this sort of, you know, disparate federal system, you know, by by the nature of how it's designed definitely acts as a check on, you know, fixing an election.
0: One of the things in the beginning of the book, you talk about the territories, um, the inhabited, uninhabited. I mean, obviously we know about Puerto Rico and the Virgin Islands, those are the Marianas. There's these a couple of disputed territories that I wasn't familiar with, but I really don't know much about. Um, but I think the public probably generally most, even me, I didn't even know the details of all the territories. And I wanna talk a little bit about Puerto Rico and DC and statehood, but um, we have some uninhabited territories and then we have a couple, talk about these two disputed
1: territories. Uh, Well, I don't know a ton about them, but I do, you know, you're talking about Serenia Bank, I believe, and Baja Nueva Bank, which I think are disputed, disputed with Colombia and Honduras, and they're, they're like, they're like two or three countries that are claiming lay, uh, are laying claim to these, um, to these lands, but I don't believe they're inhabited. I believe they're just sort of pieces of of land that yeah. one would want for strategic military, you know, reasons, uh, positioning. But as for the inhabited territories of the United States, you 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 mentioned them. It's Puerto Rico, it's Guam, it's American Samoa, it's the Northern Mariana Islands, and it is the U.S. Virgin Islands. And then D.C. is its own separate thing. But you know, between the the the, the five territories in D.C., you're talking about almost. 5 million people who who live there and they pay federal taxes and they you know they they can vote in the primary for for a president but they can't vote in the general election and they don't get members of congress who uh can actually vote on legislation they get these you know delegates or um you know representatives you know in in at in name only who can you know serve but on bill, committees bill Marr like that, just but, bill Marr just had yeah the, i forget her name the representative from the stacy plankett i think yeah she
0: was on there last week and um talking about she can do all these things except actually final you know vote um which is so uh like i think it's american samoa don't isn't part of it like the Samoa? Don't they, they don't even get full citizenship? Or isn't there a like they're they're
1: That's born correct, there? Yeah. And it's a
0: territory, but they don't get you know. Like I think if you're born in Guam or Puerto Rico, or you get citizenship, right?
1: That's yeah, you're correct. And in, in the in the four of the five territories, uh, you know, you get citizenship if you are born in American Samoa. You're not automatically American citizen. So the big thing, I mean, we hear about a lot. And and
0: um, Don Young, I'm not sure if you're aware of our Congressman Don Young. He's the longest serving congressman. He's the the dean of the house he's a republican he's been there since nixon fascinating character but um he's actually come out in favor of puerto rican statehood where it seems like a lot of republicans are against it because they think it's going to be you know um democrat votes where, where um where it's funny if you look at alaska and hawaii when, when alaska and hawaii were like debating to become states alaska was the democrat state we had these very progressive kind of democrats just get like bob bartlett and this Ernest greening character a long time ago they were involved in politics and Hawaii was supposed to be the Republican state and that switched um, for a lot variety of reasons. And Don Young has referenced that, but um, you talk a lot in the, in the book about Puerto Rican statehood and and DC statehood and what that would mean for um, the people who live there, but also, I guess, the political consequence of the four more senators. Right. Um, and, And we see the Senate right now is split 50 50. So it's, it's very marginal.
1: Well, yeah, I mean, I've sort of two things to to add on to that. You know, one is that I think thinking of looking at government through the lens of political party, uh, both clouds and distorts our, our thinking in, in general. And I, I've i come away from writing this book and, and just my experience in politics loathing the idea of political party at all or, or what the modern political party is. I just I just think they're, they're fundraising mechanisms for you know their their candidates and the party organizations just to get rich. I mean there's very little accounting and oversight of how the money gets spent. It's just mm-hmm. a way to just you know raise money from rich uh uh rich people whether it's individuals or or corporations and um what I've you know I find it very weird that we still have the system because being a territory is, is, is not wrong in and of itself. I mean, most States in this country started as, Territories, Alaska, Alaska. Alaska. I mean, this is, this is part of the natural progression to statehood, and that's fine. The problem is when the territory has done everything to indicate they want to be a state. They've done all the 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 work. They, you know, they they are just as qualified to become a state as any other state. But you're preventing them from becoming a state based on how you think they're going to vote. Well, the part, the thing that I think is so weird about Puerto Rico specifically, and this is what the representative brought up on Bill Maher, is that. Puerto Rico, you know, that is not a foregone conclusion as a democratic territory. They have yeah, one exactly, representative, yeah, exactly. They have one representative in Congress, who's not only a Republican, but she was chairwoman of Latinos for Trump. Uh, the the statehood delegation and movement in Puerto Rico is actually pretty conservative. And I think it's it's odd. And it's either based on just this sort of Kind of racist assumption that just every person of color is going to vote Democratic, which is both not true and also just not practical as yeah. a, as a strategy to assume that. Um, DC obviously has a, a, a pretty um, skewed uh, uh, Democratic swing. I think you know it's pretty uh, unless something drastic happens. You know it's pretty obvious that DC would be a state, but admitting DC and Puerto Rico in the same way that you know, like you mentioned, Hawaii and Alaska, like one state, even though the state switched, you know, party. Because parties change all the time and throughout history, um, you know, you would be having a pretty fair and balanced admission if you actually look at the voting yeah. records and the voters in these territories. That it's more likely that Puerto Rico would probably lean a little bit conservative um, in its voting, and DC would be leaning, you know, liberal. But I also think that just looking at the party of the voters is a horrible way to decide something when you know you have taxpaying citizens who, for some reason, can't vote because they don't live on the mainland.
0: Yeah, I mean, ultimately, it's, it's. Um, I remember in my college, uh, one of my college history classes, uh, the professor kind of made it very clear that, that um, according according to the Constitution, Congress makes states. And that's it. I mean, you can say whatever you want, if you're one of these territories, but the Congress is the ultimate uh, body to, to decide who's a state and who's not a state. And, you know, the last state was, uh, well, Alaska was 49. And then we got Hawaii was, you know, the 50th. And we haven't had a state since then. But we do have you know, it, it has come up a lot more. And it's. I think, you know, maybe we're on the precipice of something happening. Do you think it's going to happen? Or do you think it's maybe so divided that it's unlikely?
1: I think it's very hard for our current Congress to do anything. And that's, that's sort of, you know, the other bigger takeaway is that when we look at the three branches of government, we hear so often about the president and the Supreme Court, but like, Congress is where all the power is. And that was the intended to be the driver and the engine of of our government. It's why congress takes up half of the constitution <laughs> like if you look at you know the original parchment that the constitution was was written on you know four pieces of parchment the first two were just about congress yeah. articles two through seven are crammed into the final two pieces like half of the document is about congress because that's what they wanted uh to run our, our government representatives of the people who are elected and chosen by the state governments and the and the individual residents of the state not like a single person who hands down power through bloodline which is what it was like in England, And so I, I think we often forget that it is Congress that has the power to do a lot of these things, one of which is, like you said, making states.
0: Well, they've also over, 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 over time have, um, and people kind of question the power of the president, but the Congress has actually given the president a lot of power over matters of immigration, for example, and they've done that for a variety of reasons, but um, they can always take that power back. Uh, and, and that's another issue we see as far as what the president's doing. Well, you know, the Congress complains. Well, they gave over a period of time, they've given the president the power. Um, I wanted to ask you, I think a really funny part of the book is uh, about James Madison. And you, you, you talk about how, how much he did and how responsible he was for things like the Federalist Papers and kind of a lot of these big ideas and in the Constitution. But I think one of the funny parts is, like you mentioned, um, you know, John Adams had, a, had an HBO miniseries uh, with Paul fucking Giamatti. And you mentioned like Washington and Mount Rushmore and Lincoln and all, you know, and maybe you say, uh, was it the, maybe how they look or if they were put on money,
1: they get the the,
0: (laughs) the fame. But he, like James Madison, by all accounts, was one of the most important presidents.
1: When it comes to the Constitution, there was no single individual more responsible for that document and has, or, or anyone who has more fingerprints all over it than James Madison. That is, to me, an inarguable fact this is the guy who wrote the first draft of the constitution which is the virginia plan which was the first plan presented at the at the convention presented by his uh, fellow virginian edmund uh, randolph but he wrote the uh, or i should say co-wrote you know the virginia plan he took all the notes at the convention he was like the designated note taker even though washington was technically like the convention president he Didn't even really want to be there. He'd been dragged to be there. And so he was kind of there, you know, begrudgingly. Madison was all about it. He read all the constitutions and studied books from, you know, All across the world about governments and how they were set up. I mean, he's the one who at the end, um, you know, wrote a third of the Federalist Papers to argue for the past the ratification of the Constitution. He wrote the entire Bill of Rights, uh, which originally was 19 amendments that got whittled down to 10. I mean, this dude is all over the place. not, Not even a monument, right? I mean, he literally gets like a shitty wing of the Library of Congress, like tucked away. I mean, it's so insane to me. And yeah, I mean, this, this is just my guessing. Is like, you know, he's he's not on any money that's currently in circulation. So you know, bad bad branding right off right off the bat. He was also five foot four. Um, you know, he was our age, thirty six, living at home with his parents when he wrote. Uh, you know, took all the notes during the Constitutional Convention. It's fucking crazy. Um, that's like you know, it's like I think about that. It's pretty wild. Yeah. It's like, it's, yeah, it's basically uh, uh, super strange, but I, I think you said even Hamilton got a fucking musical and he was never a musical. Yeah. Every, yeah. Everyone's gotten something except James Madison. So that's why he's on the cover of this book. Um, and I talk about him way more than everybody else. So that's hopefully my, uh, my contribution to the, the Madisonian, uh, you know, rebranding.
0: In, any, any, uh, any hope that you think this book or this focus on Madison might, might inspire some kind of Madison uh, series or some movie about Madison.
1: Maybe. I mean, I've, are some good biographies on him that uh, um, I haven't read all of them, but they're, you know, one particularly good one by Noah Feldman, who's a, uh, I think a Harvard history professor. Um, I I hope somebody does it. You know, I kind of hope that this, uh, this book brings out, uh, uh, makes more people aware of him and
0: uh you're you're plugged into the hollywood scene a little bit with funny or die right you gotta gotta call somebody i am yeah
1: well i you know there i I will i'll i'll say this there's a there are a couple projects i'm working on um that you know if if all goes well madison will get to be a big part of
0: Uh, i want two more things i want to to talk about um the, the first one is uh um about the 27th amendment and then i want to ask you about state constitutions and specifically i want to ask you a little bit about the alaska constitution which is a very kind of much newer document compared to other states um, that have been around for hundreds of years but um the 27th i didn't know this until i read your book and i bring this up like all the time now talk about the 27th amendment and how there was a result of a fucking C. some guy got at 19 years old at the university of texas this is like this is incredible to me this more people don't know this
1: yeah it's a pretty wild story so it's and really how'd great you come across this i mean just well, I, you know, I researched all the amendment. I was, you know, right, just in writing all the, uh, uh, my, my paraphrase of, of the the text, my opinions, uh, you know, background research definitions, I I did a pretty thorough research job on every amendment and kind of thought like, okay, what do I need to include? Is there anything interesting here? And so, you know, some amendments have more context and explanation than others, but I tried to keep it pretty breezy and light so you didn't feel overburdened with history, but this story on the 27th Amendment was too good to to pass up. So this student named Gregory Watson, who I believe was a sophomore political science major at the University of Texas in 1982, he's researching amendments and he discovers that there are a few constitutional amendments that were actually proposed by Congress to the the states, um, but that actually um, had, uh, uh, not expired. So in modern amendments, what they did is they put expiration dates of like seven years on them. Um, and if they're not ratified by then, then the amendment dies and that that's how does, it does the equal rights amendment
0: have a, uh, it does. Yeah. It does? Okay.
1: Well, this is, this is sort of a point of contention where, you know, there, it, the equal rights amendment does have an expiration date, but technically it's in the, like the introduction to the amendment, like the preamble to the amendment. And if we're going by precedent, you know, preambles like in the Constitution are not part of the constitution not legally enforceable so the argument is well the expiration date isn't in the body of the text it's in the introduction and so therefore it's not legally valid and so that's the that's the challenge i I don't i'm again i i'm i'm not a a lawyer so i wouldn't be able to tell you like you know whether or not that's going to hold up in court it seemed like it could could go either way but this battle has been fought since i think 1982 also or 85 and so it doesn't seem like that's going to Happen even though ceremonially, you know, or ceremoniously, uh, cer- certain states have after the fact ratified it in the last few years, um, to get it to, to 38, which is the number you need. But this guy Watson discovered Watson, yeah, discovered that there were, um, some amendments that had been proposed by, by Congress to the states but hadn't expired, uh, uh, that were part of the original Bill of Rights. and And there were two, one of which was this amendment, I think it was actually the first. Or the originally the first amendment, like the Bill of, of Bill of Rights, it starts obviously with Amendment One, which is you know uh, uh, freedom of speech and religion and the press. That was actually the third amendment in the original block that was sent. I believe it's the first one, uh, or it, either first or second. Um, that was this rule about you know Congress can't just give itself a pay raise uh, and have it take effect tomorrow. Like it has to, if it votes to give itself a pay raise, there has to be an election that comes in between. Um, which makes you know, great than, sense. A ton of sense. It's it, it obvious. It seems almost obvious uh, uh, to us, but it, it this this didn't exist, and so he wrote a paper about it for his class, and he got a C from his TA. And in in you know he appealed the grade. He thought it was a better paper than than that, and his teacher upheld the C. And this is where I really relate in true petty uh, uh, vindictive fashion. Me, He's like, me too, man. Me. I'm too. out to prove. I'm out to prove this is a great paper. Like he would not let it rest, and so he starts um, uh, writing letters. To um members of state legislatures across the country, letting them know about the existence of this amendment and why they should ratify it. And believe it or not, they start to agree with him and start ratifying the amendment. And, and 10 years later, after his, you know, got his C, the uh 27th Amendment was added to the Constitution with the vote of, I believe, Alabama becoming I think the 30- I think Was Colorado the first one that bit? Yeah, so th- there there was uh there was I'm not sure which state was the first to to ratify, but there was some confusion about who was the 38th. I think they went back and looked and they said, oh, actually some more states have ratified it than we realized. And so it ended, it ends up being where Alabama is the, the 38th state to ratify so, the so constitution.
0: Is it, this is such a rare thing. I mean, does somebody keep a, does somebody somewhere in DC keep a record of this? Like. Who ratified it? I mean, do the legislators keep a record? Yeah, How do you know? well,
1: no, the, the states do. I mean, the states, the state legislatures have have record of, you know, ratifications in their in their own, um, you know, state records and legislative, legislative I, history. I,
0: I just know searching through the Alaska, like, you know, I do this all the time on Alaska bills and go, I mean, it's like, it's kind of really hard to find this stuff. I mean, even even in the system we have, it's like, you have to go back and what legislature and you have to search the bill. No, you know, I mean, it's, it's it's not exactly just easy to figure out what was voted on what, you know, what year it's a little bit challenging. And I think that's kind of by design I think i've that's, uh, I've, I've always that, uh, they, they they may not want us to be so involved spending the last you know three years down in June our capital for the sessions and covering it kind of in person um what i've come to realize and and it's like i totally agree it's by design i mean you could have a bill and and you can literally vote four different ways on the bill through like the first reading the second reading you know the the reconsider i mean it's like you can always say how you voted i mean you can always say i voted for it i voted against it i mean the whole thing's so convoluted the process track um you know and it's so it's so much information and there's amendments and you can say i voted for this amendment or i didn't vote for this maybe you voted for the bill you know and it's just it's very easy to say things that, that can be you know spun either way
1: yeah i think there's a correlation between the uh level of transparency and the level of accountability and that the lower the transparency is the less uh uh the less um possible or, or the the harder it becomes to hold people accountable. And I think that works to legislators benefit. It is absolutely.
0: I mean, I think if you read the constitution, um, even, even, you know, taking into account some of the old language from the you know 18th century, but p- you know, people in Ron Paul, I was a big Ron Paul fan back in 2008, kind of, that was my emerging of like, you know, politics and some level, but he'd always say something that, you know, going back, I think some of the stuff he was a little more out there now that I'm older, but, um, he used to always say like the constitution, it's like, it's readable. You can, you can look at it and you can pretty much read it understand it. The tax code, for example, any number of bills that are, you've seen the pictures, there are thousands and thousands of pages. Um, I mean, you have to be, you have to have unlimited time on your hands and a team of people to go through it and read it to
1: figure out what's really going on. The only reason to have a bill that's 2000 pages is if you don't want people to know what's in there, yeah. You, yeah. you you bore them and you shove shit in there and you make it really hard to digest, there's absolutely no reason to have something that long. Um, and it all just is, is to conceal, you know, whether it's log rolling or, you know, pork bear, just like p- people, people want to put a bunch of shit in there and, and, you know, satisfy whatever special interests or rich donors. And, and, and unfortunately, that's what happens with, you know, with, with laws, you know, both at the, the federal and the state level.
0: Have you seen the picture? I just saw on Twitter, the picture of the infrastructure bill. I mean, they're, they're using a fucking, they're, they're using a, uh, like a, like a wheel, not a wheel, what's it called a, uh, the thing you move furniture with, uh, oh my God, the, like you know, a forklift, the, they, no, like 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 a little hand trolley. They're using a like hand trolley yeah. to like carry the bill in. I mean, it's like, <laughs> what the fuck is this? Um, yeah, it's one, so stupid. One more thing about the Alaska Constitution, um, the the Prohibition Amendment, the 18th, which I've always said. And this came back from high school. A friend of mine wrote a paper. He argued the 20, they, they said, "What's the most important amendment?" And everybody said First Amendment or the you know the you know letting letting slaves vote. But this guy said the 21st Amendment, and he said because it proves the process works. You know, people didn't want prohibition so they reversed it uh which is always i thought was always interesting that was back in high school but um the the number of walgreens before <laughs> prohibition and after prohibition went from like something like 10 to like three thousand. i mean maybe, maybe i'm off a little bit is that about right
1: yeah well interesting to note about the 21st amendment there are so there are two ways that you can ratify a um a, a, a constitutional amendment one is if you know the legislatures in three quarters of states, so today that's 38 states, so the legislatures in 38 states ratify, um, or you could have like many constitutional conventions within the state mm-hmm. that can ratify. And the 21st amendment is the only time that Congress has chosen conventions rather than legislatures to ratify an amendment. Um, as for Walgreens, yes, there were a few Walgreens around. I think maybe the number is closer to, you know, a few dozen or or, or something like that. Um, but well, it was excru- not very many. Not many a handful of walgreens and uh, over during prohibition uh, they uh, created a pretty robust business of prescribing alcohol um, <laughs> for all sorts of things that you don't really need alcohol for. I mean maybe you know mentally if you if you're really you know bummed about something or or in pain, you know I guess this could contribute to you feeling better at least temporarily but you uh, uh, clearly didn't need this many alcohol prescriptions, and they honestly like built the basis of their country, or their uh, their corporation, um, and expanded their numbers drastically and franchised like crazy because of you know I- illegitimate alcohol prescriptions during Prohibition and like the mob was involved in shit. It's yeah, wild. no,
0: that's that's a that's a fucking another that could be probably a book. You know, it could be a whole book. Yeah,
1: I um, think it was an episode of Drunk History, actually. I,
0: are you are you involved in drunk history is that a funny or die thing or that's a comedy sense um well uh, I, I watch no, i watch
1: those i'm not uh i am not personally involved in in drunk history but it was it did start out um uh, as a funny or die sketch before my time there and it continued but i actually I, i've become friendly with with derrick waters who created drunk history and um he uh he actually has a quote on the back of my 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 book um uh in, in endorsing it and uh, my wife is also on an episode of Drunk History as a narrator. Uh, if anyone and listeners want to hear the so story Which, of typh- which, which one? Uh, Typhoid Mary. Oh, really? That's true? Oh, not, yeah. nice.
0: I remember I, my, one of my favorites is the Captain Cook one. You know, that's always because oh, yeah. In Alaska, he was up here and it's got kind of a little bit of a history. Um, so last thing I wanted to talk about was, um, you know, the state constitutions, which obviously there's 50 of those or um, for 50, 50 states. Alaska has kind of a unique constitution because we're such a new state. Our convention was in 55 and we became a state in 59 um, and I just wanted to ask you I want to maybe tell you a few things about our Constitution, maybe you're not aware of. Um, and then, if there's any kind of plan to do i'd love to like do this what you did on a, on a state level, because I think there's so much in there that that's most people are unaware of. Two of the things I think stand out in our Constitution that are different than most all the other states is the big one is we have a common ownership of the resources so there's no there's no mineral rights in Alaska so all the oil. We have, you know, it goes it goes into this kind of, we have this permanent fund that was created in the 70s, but but um, all the money from the resources, is it's held in the commons. And we had this governor, Walter Hickel, many years ago, talked about kind of the common ownership. Um, and then we also have something called the Judicial Council, which was created as a result of, I think back then, they kind of saw what happens when you elect judges and the problems with electing judges. So we have this, and this has lately come under a lot of contention and our current governor has been, Angry at how it works and who he gets to pick from, but basically we have a group of people that's um, appointed. Um, some are appointed by the governor, um, the chief justice is on there, and some other people, some lawyers. And they send like people apply to be a judge, whether it's a district, you know, district judge or the Supreme Court. And then they the judicial council kind of looks at it, and then they send names to the governor of qualified people, and they're ranked. And then the governor basically can pick one of those people, which is a whole different you know system of electing electing judges in other other places. So. Um, I, I, you know, I don't know, I think doing this for every state would be a big project, but I think it'd be probably a, a good thing.
1: Yeah, it's kind of a dream project I have is to, you know, the next day, I mean, I don't know how my publisher would would feel about that, but to do a, a, a you know, at least a commit like a constitution, pro, constitution project where you you get groups of people together, um, and to try to sort of demystify some of these would be a lot easier than others, you know, the, the mm-hmm it really ranges in, in length. Um, and some states have gone through a lot of constitutions. It's either Louisiana or Georgia. One of those is on its like 11th constitution, whereas Massachusetts still uses the constitution from, you know, 1780. So Massachusetts's constitution actually predates the, the federal constitution. Well, we also have something in our constitution
0: It's like this privacy clause that was um, kind of the impetus for, you know, we back in the I think 70s, there was this kind of Raven decision that was called and it basically kind of said, you can possess marijuana. So for a long time, even though it was illegal, now it's legal here, we passed that in 2014, but um, it was a result of this kind of privacy clause in the Alaska Constitution. Um, Other thing we have coming up next year and other states I think have the same deal, but every 10 years we vote for a constitutional convention. And this is coming up on our ballot next year and it's never passed and it always usually it's like fails two to one, but it's in our it's in our Constitution every 10 years that they shall put this on the ballot. And we have a big situation now with this permanent fund and this check and this money and how much money the people get and this big, huge fight. And the current governor is trying to put this permanent fund in the Constitution and kind of enshrine this this payout. But I believe next year in our state, the Constitutional Convention question is going to be a major campaign issue for for our our governor who's up for reelection. And it could be, you know, you basically open the fucking books and start from scratch, which. You know it says we had 55 delegates and the constitution says they should be a similar number um, and then they're elected actually there has to be an election for the delegates so keep your eyes open for alaska because if this were to happen opening the books on this sucker is gonna like i think be wild in this you know political environment
1: well that's that's that is extremely wild and and there is a similar thing that could happen uh uh in that is obviously never happened in in united states history but in article five, it allows, you know, uh, uh, two ways to to amend the constitution. One is the way that every constitutional amendment has happened, which is proposed by Congress, uh, two thirds of Congress, both that two thirds of the house and two thirds of the Senate to the states. But at the same time, uh, you can also call a constitutional convention if, if two thirds of state legislatures approve. So today that's 34 states. So if 34 states, their legislatures decided to call a constitutional convention voted to call a constitutional convention we would have a a a constitutional convention to amend the US constitution and you could literally do anything to it because there's no guidelines to what happens at that convention in the constitution and there are certain organizations that have you know quietly been supporting state legislative races for this explicit purpose to get to 34 and then you can literally do whatever you want could you, could, like you ima- could you imagine I mean, it would be it would be chaotic. I I can't imagine that that would go well. If the federal I, government has 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 proved or even, you know, state governments in mass have proved that they, uh, uh, you know, have proved over the last several months that that, you know, compromise and and nuance and uh, uh, maturity is not exactly their their MO. Yeah, I think
0: it was a year, maybe a year more ago, uh, Bill Maher had uh, Adam Schiff on and, and Bill Maher basically said, I think he said, we should we should redo this thing or. Uh, it was bill maher one of them said it but i think it was adam schiff who said i think it's a really bad idea right now to open this thing up and start from from
1: scratch on the constitution you know um yeah i think that could lead to a lot more problems than solutions at this point I've, i i'm i'm for amending the constitution but i'm not for you know, a, a, you know sc- scrubbing it and starting from scratch and whatever amendment even say 34 states decided to you know vote on a constitutional convention for the purpose of a single amendment once they get there that they don't have to just do that because there's Mm -hmm. there's so few guidelines to how this process goes so i i think the 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 vague nature of of this convention seems like would probably spell more bad things than good
0: last thing i'll ask you is after all your research and, and understanding of the constitution if you had the magic wand and you could do one thing what would you do add something or take something away what would you do
1: Probably change. I'd, I'd probably change three or four things. Well, I, I think that if you pay taxes, if you pay federal taxes in the United States, you have a you have a, a, a you should be able to decide how that money gets spent. Full stop. And so either you know territories uh, and DC, either they don't get they don't have to pay federal taxes, and and then they don't continue not voting for president, or they you know continue paying federal taxes, then they get to vote for president and vote for and have members of Congress who can vote on laws, it just seems fair, you know, we kind of fought the entire Revolutionary War based on that fundamental idea, having taxation with, uh, you know, with representation. Um, So I would certainly change that. Uh, I would Definitely amend our campaign finance laws. I think that's right. it's a, a nightmare, and and the way that we have it structured currently, especially at the state level, you know, state to state is just it, it's so easy to for for rich people and and wealthy corporations to to buy influence, curry influence. I mean, those laws are 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 long, you know, in need of. I just did reform.
0: A, I just did a podcast yesterday with uh, this lawyer who, I mean, obviously Citizens United opened opened the floodgates for these PACs and independent expenditures, but. Um, you probably didn't hear about this, but last week the the Ninth Circuit ruled on a case, Um, Alaska since 2006 had $500 campaign limits per person per year. And this got challenged and it's been for several, several years in the courts and went to the Supreme Court and they kicked it back to the Ninth Circuit and said, you know, work on this. Anyways, they've invalidated um, our individual campaign limits last year, two two to one on the Ninth Circuit. So right now in Alaska, until this gets resolved in legislature, there is no limits on how much you can give candidates for legislature. Or first,
1: that is, that's that's uh, horrible. Local office, Which that's horrible. Same in Texas too, by the way. There's no campaign limits. They're, the only thing in Texas you can, you're not allowed to give uh, direct compa- campaign contributions as a corporation. But if you are a you know rich sole proprietor, if you're you know a billionaire and you have an LLC, you could give a billion dollars to, see, uh, in, to up, up, up until this
0: decision since 2006, and back in I think our original in the 70s it was a $1,000 per year limit which a thousand dollars in the 70s is a lot more today probably several thousands um but it was 500 dollars per and this is kind of the result of this ballot initiative thing in 2006 but it's always been this kind of thing you know you got to like get 500 dollars from a lot of people um to, to to be able to raise enough money for the campaign unless you're self-funding the citizens united made it you know the packs you could just give a pack of you know million dollars or half a million dollars which I don't know how much different giving money to the PAC is and giving money to the candidate directly is. I mean, it's probably the same thing. It's, I don't think it really changes the influence much or the ability to... Um,
1: well, I mean, look, there are clear rules in theory and on paper about the difference between giving money to a candidate. So like, let's let's use federal graces, uh, uh, for example. I think this coming election cycle for Congress, I think the limit's 2,900 yeah, uh, yeah, the, 29, yeah. primary and 2,900 in the general. I think it goes up by a hundred every, every cycle. Um, however, uh, if you are a super PAC, you can give, you can both give unlimited money to, and they can spend unlimited money for or against a candidate or a party or, 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 you know, any sort of federal campaign. The only, issue is that they can't coordinate with yeah. the, the candidate in the campaign but people get around this all the time like if you're uh um you know say you're a, a a senator running for re-election you can just tweet out into your out into the open you know somebody should do an attack out on my opponent blah 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 you know like that we need to get them on that and like yeah you're saying it publicly but like a super PAC can then take that and run yeah, the party. other thing the other thing these people campaigns that.
0: the other thing these campaigns do and i have a lot of friends who've worked in, i've worked in campaigns i have a lot of friends who have done it um the 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 campaigns, will put out like a video, like a 20, 30 second video. But then they will include like two minutes of B roll. Of just the Canada doing shit, not, you know, and then the packs use that. because right. it's 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 in the it's in the fair. It's in the common, it's in it's in the open. So there's I mean, so
1: many ways to get around it. I, and it's I, I a-
0: think there's loopholes. I think also there's probably people just coordinating that just don't don't tell anybody. I mean, obviously, that's course. probably happening. So so. To overturn Citizens United, I mean, my understanding is it'd have to be a kind of constitutional amendment, right, on campaign finance reform.
1: Uh, no, you would just be. A, could there you, be a I law? Mean- you, I mean, yeah, you could have the Supreme Court reverse its opinion, but Congress could just pass a law tomorrow to say, hey, we, we, you can't do this. You can't have super PACs. Like we're this, we're changing how this goes for federal elections. They can mm-hmm. only regulate really federal elections. Um, so we're changing how, you know, elections go for, for Congress. And, you know, we're having strict, we're either going to publicly fund it or do a matching. I mean, they have the power to do that. for. Congress. But the Citizens
0: United, I mean, when that came out, that impacted Alaska's like, all of a sudden after that decision, then Alaska, our, our kind of over, overseer, the, the group that deals with election oversight, um, they said, okay, well, you know, unlimited money for independent expenditures now. And it's been that way since citizens, I actually ran one of those things in 2018, for somebody, so, so I, did I, was,
1: I. I can tell you. Then we can probably both. I mean, at least in my opinion, they're complete garbage. There's no oversight. I mean, people raise do packs and all the time. And um, you know, I I even had some I won't. I'm not going to name names, but uh, a, a high level associate of a well known politician came up to me and mentioned something about like you know how much they were paying themselves out of their pack. And aren't I, you know, I, I, I should be doing the same. And I was just honestly appalled yeah. um, at the level of just brazenness. And it's just, it's a, it's a scam. It's a bunch of grifters, you know, trying to grift people out of money, uh, scaring them in whatever way they can to cough up their money. There's no oversight of packs or, or super packs in terms of how well they're managed or where the money goes. It's a total black box. It's but, just but, a way to grift people. The one I ran was a, an
0: older guy who didn't like the incumbent long story. Story. he gave, he gave we set up this pack he put in thirty thousand dollars which is a lot of money for a state house race we ran a great campaign but the thing I noticed was we were doing we were knocking doors we were doing radio we were doing mail and the public what I realized right away was the public doesn't see the difference between the candidate information and the candidate no. campaign and the and the pack or the independent expenditure campaign I mean it's the same it's the same kind of thing it's just sometimes the packs even do better because you get really savvy people that get you know paid a lot of money i didn't get paid any money i think we were all done i took there was a little bit of money left over i got like 800 bucks it was like left in the account. But some of these folks are paying themselves massive salaries.
1: Yeah, I, I did not pay myself a salary in 2018. To be honest, like probably I kind of regret it. Uh, obviously, I covered, you know, uh, expenses, but I, I did have a staff of people. And so, you know, you're limited to how much money you raise in, in a short amount of time. And we raised a few hundred thousand. And so I made sure that, you know, we, we donated to, to candidates or, or causes that we said we were going to. We did, you know, get out the vote efforts and, and helping, you know, people vote and, and stuff like that that and then paying for staff but I, I I didn't I didn't take a salary
0: well Ben it's been great talking to you man I mean you're you're I'd love to do another one of, another one of these with you sometime I know you're pretty busy but um you, you have a great insight and I think the book you know I'm going to hold it up here um we're just doing the audio but uh, O M G W T F does the constitution actually say and uh it was a great read it's one of those books that I could just kind of read very quickly I could just start reading it and I'd finish it and you know it took me a couple, couple days to finish it it was one of those ones I couldn't put down I kept wanting to keep,
1: keep going well well, thank you so much. I you know, I, I so appreciate um, people like you and and you specifically for you know shining a light on state politics. You know, I think it's so important to have resources and people talking about, um, you know, both how our government works, but also like being a a place that people can learn about their state. Because as I mentioned earlier, you know, my biggest takeaway is that the power is not in the federal government, it's in state governments. And that was by design, it's right there in the Constitution. And so being able to shine a light on what's happening in, you know, Alaska's capital and with the governor and the legislature and and telling voters uh, and residents of Alaska about that and informing them like, we need more of that all across the country and in, in state capitals.
0: Well, it's, and I agree, and it's, I've been doing this for years, and it's just—it's obviously the, the biggest challenge is just you know finding resources to do it. I mean, there's there's less and less people doing this, and some of the newspapers, you know, they've they've lost so much money, or the TV stations that they have people that are you know re- really well intentioned, but you know, you don't get paid very much, and the people who are really good at this kind of stuff can make a lot more money doing something else, and um, it's just it's really challenging. But I had a friend, I'll never forget this. He was a reporter for a long time in Alaska. TV reporter. He got a job with our former governor, his press secretary. And I asked him after about a month or two of working there. So what's, you know, kind of what, how's it been on the other side? And he told me something I'll never forget. He goes, man, I've learned in one month what I would hope to learn. in like, you know, years of being, a, you just don't, you don't see it. And there's so much happening that you just when the veil gets, you know, when the curtain gets pulled back, there's so much going on. There's there's literally probably dozens of stories you could do a day on the government. And it's just a matter of trying to get it. And it's, it's, you know, they, it's by design, not easy to find out and you need people doing this stuff.
1: Well, we need, we need more carton pullers like you.
0: Well, I, I appreciate it. I love watching you on Bill Maher. I'm a big fan of Bill Maher. I watch him every Friday. And um I don't, uh, I, I, the only thing I wish is when he has people in the beginning, like you, it was more than five or 10 minutes, you know, I'd I like to do a, here a longer form. So that's why I was happy you were able to do the podcast with me.
1: Well, thank you. I do. I do have a a, a kids book, a kids version without uh, cursing, coming out of this book on um, September twenty eighth for ages eight to twelve. And then I'm also doing a, uh, I'm launching a. Um, uh, it's not masterclass the brand, but it's a masterclass style uh, civics and government course that comes out on on August twelfth. So, oh wow, um, that's great! Good for you. Know, you. Trying to that's- trying to keep uh, tr- keep educating people, and so maybe around you know some of these projects, I'll I'll be back on. Who knows?
0: Well, I'd love to. Yeah, I don't have any kids, but I have a lot of friends with kids, and and some of them are always they're always what what book do we get? So I think uh, well, I'll pre-order it ha- now. Happy to promote the new book. So um, yeah, I'll, uh, if we if we um, down the road, I'd love to do one of these again. And if I get down to your way, we should uh, love to connect sometime. Yeah, let's do it. Okay, Ben. Well, thanks a lot. I really appreciate coming on the podcast.
1: Thanks a lot, Jeff. I appreciate it.